Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. Today, this is part three of the Maura Murray case. And if you have not yet listened to parts one and parts two, I highly suggest it because a lot of this one may not make a heck of a lot of sense uh, if you haven't listened to those other two stories um, or podcast episodes yet. So nonetheless, let's get started now with part three of the Maura Murray case. In our last episode, if you recall, uh, we had discussed uh, kind of the different uh, storylines that were going on with uh, whatever witnesses were there at Maura Murray's accident uh, in Haverhill. Um, And we left off the last episode with saying the bottom line is since that day, there has never been a confirmed sighting of Maura. Now, the bus driver, uh, Butch, had said uh, that Maura, she did not seem to be impaired. Now, this information only came out about Mora being under the influence of some kind of alcohol after Cecil Smith had stated that it was Butch that told him she may have been drinking because her speech was slurred and she had to lean on something while she was standing there. But we've already discussed this, right, in part two. Had she been drinking... Or was it the result of a concussion from the accident? How do we know that she'd been drinking? Uh, How would they know this? Are they just assuming? And this is just part of what I mean when I say that this case is so confusing. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of assumptions that can be made, sure. And people are making them every day all across the internet. Uh, But, you know, we don't know if her actions after the accident were in fact due to alcohol or due to the fact that hey maybe she did hit and crack her head on her windshield and she was suffering from a very severe concussion now on the 14th of february this is five days after mora had her accident haverhill police chief jeff williams said that the search of the area where mora had crashed her car quote, into a snowbank, not a tree, as had been reported before, had ended, but that the investigation continues. Now, he hopes that Mora will contact a family member or a friend. He further said, quote, we are concerned for her personal welfare. There is no evidence of foul play. Our concern is that she's upset or suicidal, something the family was concerned about. And again, the police come back to suicidal. On the 15th of February, this is the next day, Maura's family was beginning to think that, hey, she either hitched a ride and continued on her way, or she was abducted, uh, which I am also inclined to believe. Now, a week after Maura disappeared, uh, Maura's family had expanded their search into Vermont, which was just literally just miles from where Mora had her accident. They were shocked that the authorities in Vermont, they had no idea that a woman had been considered missing near their location. Fred is even quoted as saying, quote, I could hit a three iron over the river into Vermont where there was no investigation. That's literally how close it was. 
Fred also found that after Mora's car had been located, the police in Haverhill hadn't called other nearby police stations along Route 112 to be on the lookout for Mora. Now, sure, there was a bolo put out. I will give them that. Um, But this was, you know, a couple of days later. This wasn't, you know, the night of the accident. So New Hampshire State Police, um, they have now posted Mora's photo on National Missing Persons Databases and have promised to follow any leads. But as of the 15th, they don't have any. The New Hampshire State Police will also no longer comment on Mora's case. And instead, they refer all questions to the state attorney general's office. Even to this day, everyone remains very tight-lipped. And I mean to this day. Um, I'll get into some details uh, later about this when an investigative group is able to interview some of those that were involved. It's it's kind of interesting. Fred, however, he absolutely refuses to give up. He talked with people who had heard rumors. He looked in rivers. He went over every trail he could try just to try and find his daughter. On the 18th of February, Mora's dad was quoted in a newspaper saying, quote, there's no new leads, no new evidence. It's stagnant at the moment. And Fred He blamed the lack of leads on a shortage of resources, saying that though local police, they were working hard, he wished that the small department had more help so that it could broaden its search. Quote, results are slow in coming, like the bus stations. Did she leave from a local bus station? That hadn't been investigated, so I did it myself, meaning Fred, but Fred did not turn up anything. Fred is further quoted as saying, the police are good guys, but there aren't many of them. On the 19th of February, the FBI joined in the investigation. Now, the FBI interviewed Morris' family, and it was at this time that the Haverhill police chief announced that the search for Mora was now nationwide. At this point, it's now been 10 days After Mora has been missing, Fred found out that some people living within the area where they could have seen Mora's car the night of the the accident, these people had not even been interviewed. He wasn't shy about pointing out the lack of thoroughness that the police failed to provide. Now, the same day, the New Hampshire Fish and Game, they did conduct a second ground and air air search uh, with a helicopter using thermal cameras and tracking dogs. But this time they brought along cadaver dogs. As the family helped search, Mora's older sister, she found a pair of white women's underwear that had been ripped and had been lying in the snow on a trail near French Pond Road, around six miles from Mora's accident location. The underwear was tested for Mora's DNA, but it came back negative. On February 20th, State Police Lieutenant John Scarinza 
said that the police believe Mora left the scene in a vehicle and do not share the family's belief that a passing motorist may have attacked her. He is quoted as saying, we have absolutely no indication that any harm has come to her. He is further quoted as saying, but it is also true that she was apparently leaving Massachusetts without telling her family or friends or her boyfriend. He further speculates that Mora may have fled the scene because she was intoxicated. What we do know is that because of illness, training, and vacancies, the Haverhill Police Department, seven-man department, and that's all that they had if they had all of them, was down to as few as three full-time officers and a chief at the time Mora had her accident. Around the 21st of February, the police returned the items found in Mora's car to her family, and these items ended up with Mora's sister, Kathleen. The police inventory of the contents of Mora's car were a Diet Coke bottle, nursing books, toothbrushes, deodorant, workout gear, makeup, you know, typical stuff that you'd find with a college girl on a trip, but not so many things that would make you believe that she was planning on running away. They also found five packages of sleeping pills and one empty box of Simply Sleep. Also in the car were multiple bottles of shampoo along with an empty cellophane pouch. Now, could this have been from the gum or maybe it was from something else um, that she had with her? Uh, They don't specify the size of this pouch, you know, so we don't know. Could it have been from a cigarette pack? And the only reason I even bring this up is that because uh, Faith Westman, you know, when she called 911 the first time, she's like, hey, it looks like there's a guy or some kind of man sitting in the car smoking a cigarette. Now, when Fred was able to go through Mora's belongings from the car, he found an index card that did contain directions to Burlington. The problem was Mora's car was found well east of that location. Campus police who were going over Mora's computer um, in her dorm room found that before she left, she had accessed an online map service. And we now know that this is MapQuest. You remember MapQuest? And downloaded a Burlington area map. Also back in her dorm, her stuff had been packed into boxes and items had been taken off the walls. However, I do want to mention the new semester of college would have just begun only about two or so weeks before Mora went missing. So it's very possible that Mora hadn't even unpacked yet. There was also a printout of an email from her boyfriend apologizing for an infidelity. However, this email was two years old and it was stuffed inside of a sports magazine. It's not like it was neatly laying out in the open on top of her boxes. The police believe that she had packed up her things and taken them off the walls. She'd purposefully, you know, done this. Lieutenant John Scarinza of the New Hampshire State Police said 
it looked like she was planning to leave school. So this is where we come to the part of her dorm room photos. Remember the ones that I had mentioned uh, that contained the stuffed monkey still hanging from a pipe in her room? These pictures also contain a photo of her desk with her computer on it, a stereo on a table next to her desk, decor on top of her desk, including flowers. Uh, Her speakers are up there and there's a little ceramic pumpkin. But interestingly, there's absolutely no photo of her bed. None. Well, at least any that were released. Now, this is important because we found out later from a source that Billy actually went into Maura's dorm room after she had been declared missing. And this source says that Billy saw on the bed a West Point sweatshirt, all of these stuffed animals that Billy had ever given her, as well of as well as all of the cards and letters that he had mailed to her. These were all lying on the bed. There's no mention of boxes at all. The investigator said that the boxes were stacked on top of the bed, along with this sports magazine with this letter inside. This same source said that Billy did find this old email from 2002 inside the pages of a basketball program. But this program, it wasn't on her desk. It was beside or it wasn't on her bed. It was beside her desk, not on top of her bed. Now, that's not to say that maybe there were two emails, right? But, you know, is that stretching it a little too much? On the 23rd, the police have many of their own theories as to what may have happened to Mora. Uh, either she decided to commit suicide, um, you know, and if if that were the case, you know, how far would she have gotten in super cold weather? Um, and why then has her body not been found? Um, so anyway, that's just a little side note. Either she decided to commit suicide, she ran away for a bit, and she will be back, and now it's almost 20 years later, we know that that's not the case, or she ran away to begin a whole new life. Now, one theory that had taken hold since she has never been located is that Mora did decide to move to Canada and begin a whole new life. Now, in 2004... You didn't need the paperwork that you need today to cross the border. So it would have been relatively easy. The problem with this theory, though, is that all the cash that she had on her was $280. And we know that she has not used her ATM or credit cards since the time that she went missing. In regards to starting a whole new life, Fred is quoted in a newspaper as saying, In order to do this, she would need money. She hasn't used her ATM card and she hasn't used her cell phone. She hasn't spent a dime. Now, this other theory that Mora committed suicide, the problem with this is that uh, Mora, she had stuff to come back to. She had turned in schoolwork assignments before she left. And she had also made plans to go on spring break with her sister and a friend. Now, earlier... When I talked about the EMT and how they had noticed a rag hanging from her tailpipe after the accident, the EMT went on to say that he had heard rumors around town. 
And one of these rumors was about three young men who worked at Loon Mountain. And this is a ski area just 20 miles east of where Mora crashed. These three men would have driven by the crash on the way to work that night. But that particular evening, they never showed up to work. The theory that three young men may have been involved has made its round on various blogs and such. But according to the EMT, there is someone locally who is specifically talking about it. Interestingly, early in 2023, so early this year, Julie Murray posted on her TikTok account that as she was going through some police logs from the night of Mora going missing, she came across some information that may not be that well known. I know I don't remember reading about it. The police logs said that about five hours after Mora had gone missing, someone had reported a suspicious person in the area driving a white Jeep Grand Cherokee. Now, if you remember, there was a random Chrysler part located in Mora's vehicle. Chrysler makes Jeeps. There was also a white scuff mark on the rear bumper of Mora's car. This suspicious vehicle was also white. Now, the suspicious person was reported about seven miles away from where Mora's car was found. Two officers responded to this report, including Cecil Smith. And when the officers tried to talk with the guy driving the vehicle, he took off. So I have not been able to find any further information on this. Um, But in my mind, you know, which goes 20 million different ways. Could she have been hit by this vehicle and hit by this vehicle on purpose in order to make her crash or in order to who knows? I'm just speculating here. This is not information that's um, anywhere readily available. But we do know that this information about this Chrysler part and this white scuff mark on the back of her vehicle is true. Now, a documentary about Mora that was shown on Oxygen um, did take, do you remember that rag to the question of the rag to a mechanic? So would a rag in a tailpipe have actually stalled out her car? So the mechanic tested this theory with a car just like Mora's one that had a cylinder that wasn't working. So identical as the car is hoisted up and someone is in the driver's seat, they bring the car up to cruising speed and the rag just literally pops out. According to the mechanic, the car wouldn't have stalled even if you shoved it all the way up the tailpipe. However, according to a news report, Ferries Automotive in Hansen said that stuffing a rag into a tailpipe would stall the vehicle and eventually kill the engine. So I'm not sure what to do with this. You know, we've got two mechanics giving two different variations as to what could happen. Now, remember when Faith initially called the police after the crash, she had actually mentioned something about a flurry of activity behind the back of the car. Could this have been Mora putting the rag in the tailpipe? And why would she do that? We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. And we do know the answer to this question, at least. 
it was Fred who told Mora to put a rag in her tailpipe. And I know this sounds a little off, but the thing is, is that Mora's car was leaking oil and smoking. And even though he told her not to drive the car, he knew she was going to anyways. So in order to prevent Mora from being pulled over because of her car, he told her to put a rag in the tailpipe to get her by the police if she needed to. But this then just begs the question, why would she put it in the tailpipe after the accident? Even if she had done it prior to the accident, it would have popped out anyway, right? According to this mechanic. And it was just hanging there. One thought was that I had was that maybe one reason um, that it was there is that and why she even got off the interstate in the first place. She might have noticed some police up ahead and felt it might be safer to take back roads due to her car being in such poor condition. But, you know, this still doesn't explain when or why the rag was placed in the tailpipe. So on the 2nd of March, 2004, Fred finally packs up and checks out of the hotel. He's exhausted and he's unable to help much more as the search has, for all intents and purposes, stalled. On the drive back home, Fred decides to stop at Mora's dorm room at UMass. And he said, quote, I was looking for some hint that she might have left for me, something that I'd understand that would say goodbye, but there wasn't anything. We weren't strangers. We were very close. I can't see her not saying goodbye to me. That's why I suspect foul play. Fred would then come back every weekend over the next year to search for Mora. Now, because authorities believe that she may have been picked up by someone rather than walking into the woods, they did question the last witness to ever see Mora, Butch Atwood, the school bus driver. He has actually been questioned multiple times, but as we've seen, his story seems to change. You know, at first he says Mora was okay and wasn't hurt or impaired. And then he says, at least according to Cecil, that she was slurring and had to steady herself. He was worried at the time that he should have helped more. And Butch is quoted as saying, I have some sleepless nights now. Unfortunately, we'll never know the exact facts about Butch because he passed away in 2009. As far as the police go, no one has been able to pin them down on anything. The belief is that the police are covering up a botched investigation. Uh, what's crazy is that in the Oxygen documentary, when the investigators talked to Mora's sister, Julie, she had said that the police had never talked with her ever ever now there have been other mysterious disappearances in the area both before and after mora the first was in 1993 when a 10 year old 10 year old holly was abducted while she was walking with her younger brother in sturbridge massachusetts now her body wasn't found for three months Seven years later, 
and only 10 miles away, 16-year-old Molly Bish vanished while working as a lifeguard at a local pond. Her bones were found scattered in the woods three years later. Now, some people believe that both were murdered by the same man. Now, in theory, these two crimes don't seem to fit the same mode of operation. You know, Holly and Molly, aside from their names rhyming, which is interesting, uh, were both young while Mora was a college student. However, you know, age may not be a factor uh, for the one who's responsible. But then shortly after Mora had disappeared, another young woman disappeared in the area, 17-year-old Brianna Maitland. And she went missing on March 9th of 2004, only about five weeks after Mora. She disappeared from Montgomery, Vermont, which was about 66 miles away from Mora's last known sighting. Now, Brianna, she had just left work and had driven only a few miles down the road where her car was found on Saturday, March 20th of 2004. And her vehicle was actually found partially backed into an abandoned house on Route 118 in Richford, Vermont. Now, this house is literally, I guess, only about a mile from where Brianna worked at the Black Lantern Inn. The driver's side door of Brianna's car was wide open and two of her paychecks were still on the front seat of her car. And outside the vehicle, police found loose change, a water bottle, and an unsmoked cigarette. The trooper who found the car just thought that the car had been abandoned by a drunk driver. Now, Brianna's car had been backed into this house, this abandoned house, hard and fast enough that it put a hole into the side of the home. It was often rumored that Brianna had been involved with some unsavory characters. I'm not sure where the rumor initiated. Um, but, uh, and again, it's a rumor that may have been involved in her disappearance. Now, Brianna, too, has never been found. The old farmhouse where Brianna's car had been found has since burned down. The house itself was barely, and I mean barely, off the road. And it had originally been called, quote, the old Dutchburn house. In both April and June of 2004, both New Hampshire and Vermont police said that there wasn't any connection between Mora's case and Brianna's case. They said that they believed, quote, Mora was headed for an unknown destination and may have accepted a ride in order to continue to that location, adding that they had discovered no evidence that a crime had been committed. The possibility of a serial killer has been brought up, but the police dismissed this idea. In April of 2004, Haverhill police notified Fred that um, they'd been getting complaints of Fred trespassing on their private property. The police chief of Haverhill, Jeff Williams, said that these complaints had been filed and they wouldn't say how many were filed or who filed them. 
although we do know that Faith Westman later admitted to submitting an official complaint. Many other residents of Woodsville have said that the searches haven't been a problem and they were very sympathetic to Fred's situation. On July 1st of 2004, and this is now four months after Mora went missing and just about uh, four months after Mora's items were returned to her family, the police requested the items back so that they could perform forensic analysis on them. Just for a minute, sit there and just for a minute, think of the horrendous chain of custody that these items have now been through. First, they were in Mora's car. Perfect. Then the police took custody of them. Again, perfect. If they're not, if they handled them correctly. Then after some time sitting in the police station, evidently not being analyzed because they needed them back, right? They give the items back to the family. I'm only guessing here, but those in the family were probably very curious to have a look at Mora's items. So it's likely that the items were handled over and over again by not only the family members, but anyone else that they would have let have access to them. This isn't the family's fault. They believe the police were done with them. Obviously, the police weren't. The police also took Mora's hard drive from the computer in her dorm room and they took custody of Mora's car, which up until now, meaning, you know, four months later, has been sitting unlocked at the garage where it had been towed. The police said that a major crimes unit of the state police was stepping in and wanted to conduct forensic tests of Mora's items. On July 13th, another search was performed by 60 state troopers, conservation officers, and volunteers from search and rescue organizations. They spent the day going in-line searches, looking for any clue as to what may have happened to Mora. This time, though, they extended the search to a one-mile radius But also at this time, remember, it was July. So although there wasn't any snow on the ground, the vegetation would have been quite high at this time, I would imagine. So it would have been pretty difficult to traverse. And even if a tiny item was left behind, it would have been very difficult to find. Uh, One item, though, that they in particular that they were trying to find was Mora's black backpack. Now, after this search... While they did find several items, uh, none of which were considered out of the ordinary, uh, the police said that they had found nothing conclusive. Later on that year, a man had given Fred Murray a knife that he said had belonged to his brother. The knife was rusty and stained. The man said that his brother had a criminal background and after Mora disappeared, both his brother and his brother's girlfriend were acting out of character. The man believed that this knife was used to kill Mora. Now, Fred, what he did, he went to the police because this guy brought it to Fred. Fred goes to the police. He's doing the right thing to turn the knife over. 
When he showed up, he told them, quote, I have what could be evidence in a capital crime. The dispatcher at this location that he went to said no one was available to accept the evidence, so he was supposed to come back during regular work hours. Fred then decided to mail the knife to the state police, along with all of the information that he had received. A few days later, Fred did get proof of receipt back that his package did end up with the police, but he was never contacted by them again about the knife or the suspect. A few days after the knife was handed over to Fred, the brother of the man who this brother said, you know, potentially did this thing with Mora, um, had gotten rid of his Volvo. Now, the man who had given Fred the knife later had family members come forward and say that the man made up the story because he wanted to get the reward money and that he had a history of drug use. And unfortunately, he also passed away in 2007. It should be noted that by this time, there are several theories as to what happened to Mora that popped up. Uh, One theory is that someone was driving with her, but they were in their own car and they were following Mora and it was someone that Mora knew. If this were the case and she crashed her car, the person following her could have just let her jump into their car and then off they go. While this is still a theory, it still kind of remains in limbo. It's unlikely that this occurred, but no one knows for sure because no one seemed to see anything. Another theory that's mentioned is that she was targeted by a group of men who worked for the Loon Mountain Ski Resort. Now, this is still a theory that's out there. And then there's the theory of the white Jeep Grand Cherokee that seemed suspicious. Um, A white scrape on Mora's bumper and a random Chrysler part in her car. You know, at least in this instance, we have some potential physical evidence. Again, the police tried to question this person who took off, and I have heard nothing official about this mysterious vehicle yet. Uh, Lastly, there was yet another witness who seems to be very, very credible, who speaks of a red truck. Now, this woman, she was walking to a local store, to the Stage Stop slash Swiftwater store, the same night of Mora's accident. Around 7 o'clock that night, she's walking up a hill to get to the store, and a truck passes her, uh, which seemed to be going in the direction of the accident, as we'll find out later. But this truck slowed down, And then when it got to the middle of the hill, it stopped in the road. The woman who had been walking, she looked at the plate of the truck and noticed that it had Massachusetts plates. At first, she thought that maybe someone in this truck may have recognized her and just wanted to stop and say hello or thought that she was someone who may have needed a ride. And as soon as she got closer to the truck, the truck took off up the hill. She did notice that the passenger of this truck uh, looked at her. When she got over the hill and around the corner to the store, she could see this same truck in the parking lot of the store. As she walked into the parking lot, which was very well lit, the truck again left the parking lot, but this time it headed 
in the direction of where Mora's crash had happened. And I know earlier I had said it was in that direction. I believe it was going the opposite direction towards the store at the time when it stopped on top of the hill. At the time, this woman who was walking, she had no idea that a crash had even occurred. When she got to the store, she asked the owner of the store, who was also a friend of hers, if anyone from that truck had come into the store and the owner had said that they did not. She then told her friend about the truck stopping on the hill. They just forgot about it eventually. And the woman, the women just stood in the store talking with her friend for a while when they saw police and ambulance go by. She never saw that red truck again. She described it as a truck that appeared as though someone used it to deliver wood. The back portion of the truck, instead of a usual truck bed, would, um, you know, just, I don't know how else to put it, but would just be part of the truck, the truck bed. This one instead had wooden slats along the side. It wasn't a very large truck. It was just a normal sized truck with these wooden slats on the side. But the truck, the woman said, did sit up high. The woman was in the store for about a half hour to about 45 minutes. Uh, She said it was about 20 to 30 minutes after she'd been there that the police, uh, she saw the police go by. She believes she caught the truck off guard as she was walking, quote, well off the road. And as they passed, I walked back on which is why I believe they stopped completely. They couldn't see me without any streetlights and maybe went to the store and waited for me to get up there to get a better look. I don't know. This is just how it seemed to me. The truck didn't scare me. My thought is that they slash he slash she thought I was someone else. This is what I was thinking that night. When I saw them sitting at the store, I again thought they really think I am someone else. And as I got closer, I could see the driver moving around. I was thinking there, I am not the person you are looking for. And he drove off. I wish to God I could remember what I was wearing that night, but I can't. At around 8 p.m., She began walking back home, and as she again is in the middle of the hill near her house, an ambulance went by, quote, as if it was leaving the accident scene. It then slammed on its brakes when it saw me and pulled into the Bunga Road, which is on the other side of my house. Then a state police officer pulled up and rolled down his window. I said, hello, and he said, oh, it's you. And I said, yep, just me. He asked if I had seen anyone else walking around, and I said no. And he left, and the ambulance just followed him. The woman actually didn't hear about the accident that happened until a couple of days later, when her friend from the store called her and reminded her of the truck. She has spent numerous times looking for this truck, to no avail. Quote, the reason I was sure it was Massachusetts plates is because when it stopped on the hill, I looked at the plate and tried to memorize it, thinking to myself, oh, great, I'm going to get kidnapped or something. Obviously, a few days later, the only thing I could remember was the Massachusetts plates. The woman further said, 
I spoke to the police on the phone afterwards. This was a week later and only because I called them. They didn't really ask any questions and I can't remember who I spoke with. They weren't interested in what I had to say, but neither was Fred when I told him. He dismissed me quite quickly, which never set right with me, to be honest. In November of 2004, Fred Murray went on the Montel Williams show in order to keep the case open in the public's eye. Now, that night, and I, you'll find out soon why we're just learning about this, the night of Moore's accident, sometime between 8 and 8.30, a contractor who lived across the street from Butch Atwood was driving home from Franconia, which is quite a ways east from the accident location. As he was driving home, he saw someone, quote, moving quickly on foot. They were going eastbound on Route 112, and the location was about four to five miles east of where Mora's car was found. The person was described as young, wearing jeans, a dark coat, and a light-colored hood. Now, this tip didn't come in until three months later, while he was going over his work records and realized that this was the same night Mora disappeared. This man, as mentioned, lives across the street from Butch, which is also about 100 yards from, if you remember, where Mora's scent was lost. This contractor was again interviewed by State Police Lieutenant John Scarinza, who checked out his timeline and confirmed that his story fit. Now, I'm going to speculate here for just a second. Uh, first, this man was building a home at the time that Mora went missing. Uh, he lived in a trailer on the site of where the home was being built. Coming home that evening, he had come across someone running along the road, which fit the description of Mora. If you're driving along a secluded road and you see someone running, wouldn't you be curious? Wouldn't you stop and ask if they needed help? You know, maybe, maybe not. But to play devil's advocate here, what if he purposefully held on to this information for so long because he knew more than he was saying? Like, let's say that he did pick her up and that he did offer to take her to his place to make a phone call or whatever, and then something terrible happened to Mora. If you're just building a house, it would be a great way to hide a body, wouldn't it? Again, please keep in mind, I am just speculating here, but something about this whole story just does not sit well with me. Based on what the contractor told the police, the police then again took out canine teams with six dogs and 15 fish and game officers to search the area where this man may have seen Mora, but no new leads were reported. Now, remember, this is three months later, and I don't know exactly where they went, uh, since this contractor had said, hey, it was like four or five miles down the road. My assumption is that they uh, hit four to five miles down the road and that's where they were searching. But nonetheless, this is the information that we have. On the first anniversary of Mora's disappearance on February 9th, 2005, a service was held at the location where Mora had crashed her car. 
Fred was also able to meet for a very short time with New Hampshire Governor John Lynch. Now, Fred wanted to meet with the governor because he wanted his help in getting records of Mora's investigation. He wanted to be able to pursue leads on his own. For six months, Fred heard nothing from the investigators. He said, quote, I am the investigation. That's why I want the information. Now, the police, of course, they turn around and say that Fred's statement about not hearing anything in the past six months is absolutely inaccurate. In November of 2005, a person who used the um, username uh, Tom D, that's all I'm going to say, logged into a message board that was specifically dedicated to talk about the discussion of Mora's disappearance. And this user is claimed to have seen a black backpack behind a restroom at an overlook. Now, this location that this person mentioned is about 30 miles east of Woodsville on Route 112. The senior assistant attorney general, Jeffrey Strelzen, said that law enforcement, quote, was aware of the backpack, but they didn't disclose whether it had been taken for forensic testing. It should be noted that Jeffrey Streltson has been very, very tight-lipped about any evidence in Mora's case. And tight-lipped is actually putting it mildly. I would describe him personally as a micromanager. In the Oxygen documentary, which was in around, I think, 2017, For the very first time, officers involved in the case were allowed to be interviewed, but they weren't able to do it alone. Mr. Strelson had to be present for each and every interview that occurred for the documentary. Doesn't that strike you as a little odd? You know, yes, at the time, he was the senior assistant attorney general, but he's in the room with the officers as if they need legal counsel for some reason. Although Mr. Streltson never says anything, what I found really interesting was that in each interview, he positioned himself in a way so that he was always visible to any of the officers who were being interviewed. And if you get a chance to watch this documentary, you'll see what I mean. In 2006, a group of 10 retired police officers and detectives called the New Hampshire League of Investigators, along with the Molly Bish Foundation, began working on Mora's case. The Molly Bish Foundation was established by Maggie and John Bish after their daughter went missing after working as a lifeguard. Now, Molly's remains were found three years later, but no one has ever been charged in the case. While this new group that's looking at this this case wasn't allowed to see the actual case files, they could analyze all of the facts that they had. Now, John Healy, who's a former New Hampshire state police officer, who's one of the team's leaders, is quoted as saying, it's our job to be sort of a buffer between police and the family to help the family understand what the police are doing behind the scenes. A former police chief and a member of the Licensed Private Detectives Association of Massachusetts, Tom Shamshek, stated, quote, it appears that this is something beyond a mere missing persons case. 
something ominous could have happened here. The group followed up with interviews, and in October of 2006, a two-day search was done. Canine teams were sent to six different publicly owned areas within five miles of where Mora's car was found. While John Healy wouldn't give details as to why they were searching certain areas, he did say that 95% of homicide victims are found within a five-mile radius of where they were last seen. Gravel and sand pits were searched, as these are some of the best places to dump a body. The area around French Pond was also searched. Now, uh, French Pond Road, that was the route that Butch had driven when he searched on his own for Mora the night she disappeared. Fred was also there for this particular search and pushed investigators to search an A-frame house on Valley Road near the scene of the accident. He thought that it might be connected. At the time... The house was for sale, so Fred asked the agent selling the house if it was okay if they searched inside. The agent gave his okay and then gave Fred a key. On the first day going into this house, a cadaver dog had hits on the second level. The next day, four more dogs went quote-unquote bonkers. According to Fred, they hit on a closet downstairs. Now, other reports say that the dogs hit on a closet upstairs, uh, but nonetheless, the group then took some trash bags filled with things from this house and a piece of carpet from the closet. Now, the carpet was to be separated into two pieces, one for the state police who weren't there uh, during the search, and the other was to be held by the group of volunteer investigators. Lab tests were done to determine if the DNA matched Mora's. Now, seven months later, the test results were not made available, and the police never released the results to the public. To make things even more frustrating, there ended up being some confusion as to who had custody of this carpet. A private investigator, Healy, he wasn't there the weekend of the search. He was sick, but he did say that the police weren't interested at all in the evidence and wouldn't even take it into possession. Now, Healy further said that the carpet is in the possession of an investigator who now doesn't have any business relations with the group anymore. So where is this carpet? Did the police actually take it? Did they perform tests on it? Um... I'm really confused about this carpet. In a 2016 documentary, John Healy said that the samples were given to the New Hampshire State Police and they don't know what happened to them. So there we have it. Also in 2016, they went back to this same A-frame house, but this time they went with podcasters Tim and Lance from The Missing Podcast. After going through the whole house, they are still able to find blood in the closet on the walls. And they took wood chips from that closet, which John still has in his possession. They brought in a DNA expert to test these chips to see if it's human blood, which it does end up being. The next step is to have this DNA tested. So the DNA came back with the possibility that one of the samples 
could have been Mora, but unfortunately it was so degraded that it would have been impossible to tell. The other DNA sample was male. Now remember, this was in 2016 during the documentary. But what's also interesting is two years after Mora went missing, Fred Murray sued the state of New Hampshire because he felt that they weren't properly investigating Mora's case or sharing enough information with him. The case actually went all the way to the New Hampshire Supreme Court and the state won. What we do know is that there are over 2,500 documents related to this case that no one but law enforcement has seen. Now, Fred believes a lot was swept under the rug because the ski industry is huge in New Hampshire and it brings in a lot of money. You know, given this information, if there was known to be crime, especially violent crime in the area, it might hurt business. Fred believes that the police are hiding something and one of these somethings uh, is just their own lack of performance. Route 112 is a state patrolled highway, but Haverhill's jurisdiction ends 100 yards up the street. And I think I've mentioned this before. No search, therefore, happened beyond those 100 yards by the local police. So my guess is maybe this is why Cecil sent Butch in search of Mora, because his official jurisdiction ended just past uh, Butch's house. And curiously, you know, this 100 yards, boy, this number keeps coming up, doesn't it? Curiously, this 100 yards is where the dogs ended up losing Mora's scent. Now, did they actually end up losing her scent there? Or did they only take the dogs 100 yards up the road because they couldn't go past that? It wasn't their official jurisdiction. We just don't know. Now, remember, there was that state trooper who had pulled over and asked Cecil if he could help the night that Mora had her accident, um, he could move past their jurisdiction. The odd thing is, is that the state police didn't even know why a state trooper was in the vicinity that evening because he never reported it. Now, this state trooper, John Monahan, he was interviewed years later, again with Strelson in the room, not far from where he was being interviewed. And he had, in fact, received a call asking if he had helped in the case of the Haverhill car crash. And he was asked asked if there was a report. Now, John said, no, there wasn't because he just did a general service report. It wasn't a case he was personally actively working on. He just stopped to see if he could help. In 2007, the Arkansas group called Let's Bring Them Home offered a $75,000 reward for information that could solve Mora's disappearance. In 2009, a new cold case unit was established in New Hampshire and Mora's case was added. On the 10th anniversary of Mora's disappearance on February 9th of 2014, Strelzin made a statement that said, quote, we haven't had any credible sightings of Mora since the night she disappeared. So, By this point in the case, Fred believes that his daughter is likely dead and had been abducted the night that she disappeared. 
in 2017 on the 13th anniversary. Strelzin wrote an email to the Boston Globe. And in this email, he said, quote, it's still an open case with periods of activity. And at times it goes dormant. There are no new updates to share at this time. Now, 2017 was also the first time that Cecil Smith had ever sat down to answer questions about that night. And this interview took place during the Oxygen documentary. Cecil is asked about witness A, Karen, who came across vehicle 001 the night of the accident. Now, Cecil said that he had heard about this, but no one was there when he personally arrived at the scene. He said that that night he was driving the department's Explorer because it was wintertime. Normally, he would have been driving a sedan. Cecil never did say that his vehicle was number 001, but later, during a brief recap in the documentary, it was mentioned that his that the Explorer was, in fact, vehicle 001. However, Julie Murray, uh, Maura's sister, in March of 2022, had some very interesting information on her TikTok account about the question of vehicle 001. In this video, she says that when John Monahan was asked, and if you remember, he was the state trooper who... Uh, came by and said, hey, is there anything I can do? When he was asked, he said that Cecil was driving the sedan, not the SUV, as he had stated in his interview. Uh, She also shows a screenshot of a document with the heading, quote, Woodsville Rescue Ambulance. And this is dated from March 2004. And it says that the night of Mora's accident, There was actually a meeting going on at the fire department. And according to Julie, all of the members of this meeting responded to the accident far more than what was reported. And still nobody saw where Mora went. I mean, isn't this just unbelievable? Later that day, whether it's related or not, um, the SUV 001 had to be pulled out of a ditch at 4.30 in the afternoon. Uh, Cecil further said that Fred had told him that Mora was all depressed before the accident. Cecil continued to say that he felt like Fred knew something that they didn't about Mora's mental state. In February of 2019, we're now on the 15th anniversary of Mora's disappearance, Fred again stated that he believed his, he thought his daughter was probably uh, dead by this point in time. He further said that the house where the cadaver dogs had hit on possible um, human remains, he believes that this is where Mora had died. So in April of 2019, an excavation was done in the basement of the house. And the house that I'm referring to I believe, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, that this is the same A-frame house that they had searched uh, prior. But an excavation was done in the basement of this house because the cadaver dogs once again hid on a location. But this time it was actually in the basement. Fred had wanted to search the home previously, but the owners didn't allow it. And so there was nothing he could do. 
Now, once the property was sold, its new owners did allow several searches of the property. After the excavation was done, it was stated that they found, quote, absolutely nothing other than what appears to be a piece of pottery or old piping. Now, every year since her disappearance, the family had gathered at the tree where Mora's car was last seen and they have a small service. And each year they tie a blue ribbon around the tree and they did this for every year until early 2021 when the property owner cut down the tree. They cut down the tree. I mean, really? After this happened, Mora's family requested from the state of New Hampshire to have a historical marker placed at that location, but it was turned down by the New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources. Now, in September of 2021, there was a little bit of hope. Some bone fragments had been found on Loon Mountain in Lincoln, New Hampshire, and this is about, you know, 20, 25 miles east of where Mora crashed her car. According to Mora's sister, Mora had been to that mountain before and knew the area. After waiting for two months to figure out if the bones belonged to Mora or not, in November of 2021, it was revealed that they were not the remains of Mora. In January of 2022, the FBI issued a national alert in Mora's case and created a violent criminal apprehension profile. This is also called VICAP that allowed multiple law enforcement agencies to share information about her case. In July of 2022, New Hampshire law enforcement began a search in the towns of Landaff and Easton. The police, they still keep coming back to suicide, but Mora brought her cell phone charger, her birth control insurance forms that she meant to go over with her dad that night. She had textbooks from school. She had plans to go on spring break. Why did she call a condo in Bartlett, New Hampshire, just before she left? And this, by the way, wasn't investigated for over one year by the police. All things considered, it really appears as though Mora had a destination. We just don't know what destination that was. Something was going on with Mora, but we just don't know what. Was she happy? Was she confused? Was she having relationship problems with Billy? Remember, she reached out to him even before her trip. Some people even speculate that Mora wasn't even at the scene that night. According to one article, many residents in the Woodsville area own police scanners. And this has led some people to theorize that once Mora's accident was heard on the scanner, someone with ill intentions headed to the scene. To date, no suspects have been publicly named. Uh, there are plenty that are speculated about on forums and such, but you know, to note these here would be uh, irresponsible of me. Again, no suspects have been publicly named. And that, my friends, is the end so far of the Maura Murray story. I can only help that with so much time having passed that maybe, just maybe, 
the police will release other information or someone will come forward that has information about where Mora may be. And again, if you're listening to this and you have any information on the case, no matter how small or how trivial you may think it is, please contact New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at 603-223-3648 or by email at coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. Thank you everyone for listening. I truly appreciate it. This one has been exceptionally long. Um, I'll be honest with you. I really got pulled in and pulled in different directions when trying to research this. And it was hard to try and find out who was, what was fact, what was speculation, what was this, what was that. And I've tried my best to keep it as neutral as I could. Um, But nonetheless, I hope you've enjoyed this. And I really, truly hope that something comes of this case. This is um, frustrating, to say the least. But thank you, thank you, thank you. And I will speak with you soon.